This is the very first episode of Lab Rat Chat. I'm Jeff here with my co-host, Danielle. Hey, everybody. And this podcast is all about just letting you all know, letting the public know that there's another side to the story, which you may have heard surrounding the world of animal research. And so we're here to provide you with some facts and that alternate narrative to describe and tell you that animal research is indeed 100% necessary, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and we want to debunk some myths. Everything is not as some of the media would like to portray it. We want to interact with you guys. We have a Twitter handle, which is at the lab rat chat. We also have an email address. What's the email address, Jeff? It's labratchat at gmail.com. Perfect. So yeah, if you guys have any questions, once you kind of hopefully stick with us and listen to this podcast, email us, hit us up on Twitter. And I think there was also some exciting Amazon gift card giveaways. Yes, there are five $100 Amazon gift cards that we're going to be giving away to the listeners of this show as long as you are interactive with the show. So you go go online and leave some comments, leave some feedback. It could be negative. It could be positive. It doesn't really matter. We're going to address the comments if they're negative or even if they're positive. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you want us to interview a particular person that's in this field, we'll Let be happy know. to do that. We'll reach out to them. Yeah. We want as much feedback from you all as we can possibly get to be able to answer any questions or concerns that you might have about this field. Because I know whenever I ask my own family members, cousins, nephews, nieces, what their thoughts are on animal research, it's either what is animal research or it's negative or it's it's cruel and inhumane. And then it takes some time to go into some education. Yep. So let's get into it. We just want to introduce everybody to ourselves. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this field. Yeah, so I'll start by going back to the college years. I went to college at the University of Nevada, and I stopped it at University of Nevada. So anyone listening in Nevada is going to be upset about that if you went to UNLV. Sorry. But I went there and got a master's degree in biotechnology. And after college... It was 2009, so not the greatest time to find jobs. We moved down to Texas for a job. And that was my first exposure to the world of animal research. So I went five years in school, never heard a single thing about the use of animals in research, which is kind of mind-blowing. And worked there for a few years with lots of different animal models. I um, was really just fascinated by the whole world of live animal medicine, how there were veterinarians overseeing the animals and their health and welfare how there were just so much support and administrative staff and researchers and physicians and scientists involved. And so after those three years, my wife joined the military and we moved to Virginia. So I got a new job in Richmond, Virginia as a biosafety officer. Not a whole lot of animal involvement in that job, a little bit, but I wanted to get back into the animal world. And so after a few years there, an opportunity opened up on the more east coast of Virginia, where I cook administrator of sorts. So I cook being the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. We'll talk more about that later in the show. Responsible for kind of overseeing all the protocols that go on. And I got to interact daily with veterinarians, the researchers, and it was where I wanted to be. But then I ended up now... And I'm in my second year of veterinary school. So after a few years of doing that job, I decided, you know, I want to go to veterinary school, be a lab animal veterinarian, and just super passionate about the field and the importance of the research and educating the public on how we need it and all of that. So that's where I'm at. A little bit about myself. So I grew up in Connecticut, um, always loved animals, knew I wanted to work with them, didn't know in what capacity, went to University of Connecticut, go Huskies. And I majored in animal science. And I remember one day my dad sat me down and he was like, Danielle, 
I don't understand what animal science is going to give you. How are you going to have a career when you graduate? And I said, Dad, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. I got this. I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> but I remember junior year, I took a class called Lab Animal Science taught by Dr. Robert Milvey, my favorite professor. And he just opened up this whole world to lab animal research that I had no idea about previously. For this class, we each had a lab rat that we got to work with. And at the end of the course, we got to adopt them. So I had this awesome rat that, you know, we kind of cared for and got to learn with. And then I got to adopt him. His name was Nacho and he lived nice. a very happy life. <laughs> and it just kind of got me involved in this field. And as soon as I graduated, I worked as an animal care technician in a lab, moved around to North Carolina and then to Virginia. I've worked as a vet tech. I managed an animal facility. And now, like you mentioned, Jeff, I'm on the sort of administrative side and I help coordinate for the IACUC, which, as he said, was the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. So I'm still involved in the animal research side of things, but more on the compliance side, which fits in with my passion for making sure that these animals are cared for. And right. that's how Jeff and I, we crossed paths because he was doing the IACUC side and I was managing the facility and uh, we worked really well together. And here we are trying to let everybody know about what we do in this field. Yeah. And just real quick too, you say you manage a facility that what goes into that. So, I mean, you have, cause it's not just something you can just, anybody can go do, right? There's certifications involved and things like that as well. Yes. There are multiple levels of certifications. So when you start out as an animal caretaker, you can just get the assistant lab animal technician certification. There's a lab animal technician, lab animal technologist and certified manager of animal resources. So you kind of work your way up taking these exams, ensuring that you have knowledge and you know, you're invested in this career. And those help you kind right. of climb the ladder, if you will, to get to the top. And all those exams are kind of to ensure that you understand the different regulations and the different species involved and how to properly care for these animals that are in the labs. Yep. That are in um, their so-called cages, right? Yes, cages. And that's a good point you make because I decided I think we should try to change the narrative to call them more of enclosures. Because when I think of the word cage, I'm using air quotes over here. You sort of picture like a metal box and it's just barren and awful. Like and there's like there's like water dripping in the back of it and it's cold and there's <laughs> right. a draft not, going through. Yeah, we are right. not housing animals in these conditions whatsoever. So just scrap that image out of your brain and think of them. So I'm going to use the word enclosure. Some of the animals yeah. are even in their cages again are called suites because they have multiple levels. There's ladders for animals that want to climb. There's nests and various bedding substrates that they can play in and dig in. They have little houses. They have yeah, different enrichment every week, different treats. Larger animals get to interact with the caretakers more because they prefer that. So you can kind of right. hold them, hug them, scratch them, give them, you know, love and attention one on one time. So these animals are and they're treated. all and they're housed together as well, Social right? So that they can housing, interact with yes. each other and. It's a big thing. So yeah, there's lots of, I guess the point here I wanted to make with bringing that up was just, there's lots of different regulations and we will talk about some of the regulations and make that as exciting as we possibly can. I know regulations kind of, people just shut their minds off when they hear that word. It's not a very super exciting topic. We'll try to make it very basic, just hit the surface of it. Again, just let you guys know that these animals aren't just being taken from people's homes or shelters or off the street not or whatnot for right. research. So yeah, thanks for that introduction about yourself. And then the next thing I just kind of want to touch on real quick before we get in and start throwing out all these different words and terms are the differences between animal testing and animal research. Because I know we both kind of have our interpretation. I think our interpretations align, but a lot of media, if you read on any article or blog post or whatnot online, it seems that they only talk about animal testing 
when to me it's animal research and there's a big difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So animal testing is more when the animals are needed for testing safety and efficacy of different drugs or products or medical devices to ensure that they're safe before you give them or put them into a human or an animal. And so we just have to make sure there's a process there enforced by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. The animal research side is more the study of organisms, the study of biology, understanding how our bodies work, how our minds work, how animals' physiology works, and then study of infectious diseases. The world of animal research is, we could sit here and describe forever, but basically coming up with new medical advancements for humans, for pets. And so those are my big, that's my main interpretation of the two. Yeah, people might not even really process the amount of animal research that goes into even bringing your pet to the vet for if you need to have a rabies vaccine or if you put frontline on your dog to make sure they don't have fleas and ticks. Like these products, there had to be research that went into them to make sure they're safe for your pet, make sure that they do what they're supposed to do. So there's so many levels of animal research all the way up to curing cancer, which hopefully one day there's an easy cure across the board for that. But until we get to that point, animal use for research is going to be necessary. We'll stick with the frontline example. We don't want to just have someone develop it in a lab and be like, all right, this is good. Let's mass produce it and give it to all the pets. And we haven't tested it. It has to be tested somehow. And we have to make sure that it's safe. We have to make sure it's safe for us. We have to make sure it's safe for our pets and all animals and humans. So, And as you started to touch on, there's no end to the use of animal research currently. We have to use them. We don't even, you know, people talk about the organs on a chip and all the different in vitro and computer modeling, which is all super great. I think every scientist, every physician, every person involved in the field of lab animal research would gladly throw in the towel and move on to another career field if there was a 100% replacement, effective replacement of animals for research, if you could do it. But at this point in time, we're just not there. I think that's a good segue into kind of discussing what the IACUC oversees, because we can talk about the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees at every institution that uses animals with funded research. We ensure that research is not pointlessly being repeated. It has to be a new study, a refinement in a study. We want to keep talking about flea and tick treatments. You know, it's (laughs) not going to be approved because that work is already established. So moving forward, new cancer treatments. Okay, we've treated this kind of cancer. Let's see if the same treatment works on a different kind of cancer. It has to be something new. And that's why there's a whole committee that has a minimum of essentially five people. Some committees right. can have three. We don't need to get into the details between the two. <laughs> yeah. But you're always yeah. going to no, have... Yeah, not put everyone to sleep too quick. <laughs> you're always going to have a vet on that committee. Um, you're always going to have scientists. There should be community yeah. members, people who are not affiliated with the institution, who can just have an outsider perspective to make sure that the research... you know, Right, and they also don't have a science background. Sorry. They also don't have a science background either, right? So they're truly just an outsider from the community coming in to review protocols and just put in their two cents, if you will, for each protocol to question why it's necessary in a way. There's a a statistician on committees to make sure that the number of animals that are being requested makes sense. Can you get scientifically or statistically significant data with less animals? You know, all these aspects are reviewed before a protocol is approved and animal work cannot start until they have an approved protocol. So there are checks and balances in place so that people can't just come up with an idea, run into the lab, order 100 animals, and then try something. Right. Because even if they did try that, you, previously animal facility manager, would just be shutting that down anyways. It's not even like they can go online and order their own animals. It's all through a different system. They can't put in an order for animals until the people ordering them 
see that there's yeah, approval. approval. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, and just back to what you're saying about statisticians and refinement and all that, there's actually in this field a thing called the three R's, refinement, replacement, and reduction. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's, oh, been, right. yep. it's been about a year. So <laughs> You're good. <laughs> and so all of those things are aimed at how can you replace the animal model? How can you reduce the animal numbers? And how can you refine your techniques to eliminate or reduce pain or distress that these animals may undergo? So all of those are, I mean, these IACUC meetings are three yeah. hours long. And <laughs> right. those three hours may be two protocols. So they really get down into the nitty gritty and to the protocol design, and that, the pain control. Can also, they can also request modifications to the protocol. So just because it went and was discussed in front of a committee, it's not guaranteed to get approval. They could come back and say, you need to reduce your number of animals. You need to justify why you want to use this pain medicine instead of this pain medicine, which could work better. And a lot of times the researcher will come back and say, oh, great idea. I'm going to use that one instead. It's a lot of collaboration right. between the vets, the researchers, the caretakers, the staff in the animal facility, the research technicians who work for the researchers. It's all to create a better research model that's humane and will give good results. Because again, if you're not even housing these animals or treating them with the care and respect that they deserve, you're not going to get good data. And that's a double negative. So it just doesn't behoove right. anyone to do that. Yeah. yeah, behoove. That's good. And I mean, we've both seen that firsthand without going into details about protocols that it was early on and a scientific you know, research protocol and it wasn't working as they intended as far as surgeries and pain control went. And they weren't getting the data that they needed. But, you know, with the input of veterinarians and vet techs to modify different techniques, they would do either pre-surgery, post-surgery, during the surgery, pain control. Uh, they're able to then refine that technique to where the animals are now much better off. And they end up getting much better data that then leads to furthering their research hopefully getting closer to getting into humans and curing cancer because that's what that protocol was, was trying to find a, a, a new mm -hmm. cure for breast cancer or a cure for mm -hmm. breast cancer. And that also lends itself to the point I want to make about post-approval monitoring. So just because this iCook has approved a protocol and people are starting their research project, it's part of my job currently to perform these post-approval monitoring. So I just will pick a protocol, let the researcher know I'm going to show up next time they do a procedure. And I just observe and I just make sure everything is in line with what is approved by the committee, what's in the protocol. If right. they're running into issues, you know, I, I can say, hey, let's sit down with the vet. Let's work through this. Let's get an amendment on file to say you want to change this procedure. So just because they've gotten approval, there's still oversight for the lifespan of that protocol. Right. They don't just get a run amok and they have to check in every year. Right. They have to yep. give an annual report to the IACUC once a year. And that, yep. that has to be reviewed. And then every three years, they need to completely rewrite their protocol and resubmit it and go through the whole approval process all over again. So these protocols aren't being approved indefinitely. It's and, and without any and oversight. Continue to oversight. Yeah, and it's and the oversight is, I mean, it's super strict, right? If you catch them giving an injection through the wrong route, like if they're giving it under the skin instead of into the muscle, it's something like, well, you got to write that's that right. up. Yeah, we but it's very it. collaborative. You try to do it in a way that's collaborative and not policing. And I think that sets up a good environment to ensure the health and welfare of the animals if everyone's willing to work together. And the scientists, once they're trained on the importance of the health of their animals and how it affects their data, they're totally on board with the ensuring yep. you know, that they do everything that they can to minimize or eliminate pain and distress. And Everybody they're super well taken field, care of. Everyone in this field has a vested interest in the care of these animals. And I just think people need to kind of be made aware because you just see the other side where people say that we're just 
leaving these animals in cages and they're just ignored until someone wants to poke them with a needle and do science. It's just such a overplayed, incorrect narrative. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I've had those conversations and it's unfortunate. A lot of the vet techs in this field came from small animal clinics or large animal or mixed animal clinics where they were working with people's pet cats or dogs or horses. And now they, they just wanted to change. And here they are in lab animal and they find themselves unable to talk about what they do with other people because they get everyone gives them this look that there's some cruel, inhumane person because they're involved in the field of animal research. You know, I know personally for me, if I'm out somewhere and someone asks me what I do, I'm real hesitant to tell them. Because I know it's going to be a long conversation 99% of the time. Unless they're involved in the field, then they understand. Either they're going to be opposed to it, and I'm gonna, now I'm going to have to try to convince you otherwise. Maybe re-educate you on some of the facts that you might, or facts that you might think are facts. Or just have to explain what it is. It's never a quick like, hey, I'm Jeff. Yeah, I do lab animal research. See you later. Lab animal research? Oh, you do animal testing? <laughs> right. Yeah, which goes back to the animal testing. Like I've had people just say, oh, you're testing makeup on animals. That's completely different too, though. Yeah. I'm sure you've had those conversations or, or just questioned whether or not you even want to tell people what you're doing. Because even in school, there's all these tracks that we can do, right, in veterinary school. So you could do small animal track. You can do food animal. Even when people ask me at school, sometimes I'm tempted just to say I'm doing small animal or my goal out of school is to do small animal medicine because, again, it's just that long conversation, even with veterinary students. And so, yeah, and that, that's why I think, uh, yeah, that's why a podcast like this is so important. And hopefully by the end of these episodes that we're going to do for this podcast series, people will at least have this different idea in their mind about what animal research is and not yeah. forcing anyone to support it. But hopefully by what you hear on this podcast, you'll at least you understand think, it, think differently and understand it and realize that, you know, it's not everything that you've heard. For future episodes of this podcast, we have some pretty interesting guests people yeah. that we're going to be interviewing. Do you want to kind of go into who you're hoping to interview on this? I don't want to give away too much information, you know, give away all the exciting <laughs> details for upcoming episodes. But we do have lab animal veterinarians coming on. We have at least one or two researchers that are going to be coming on just to talk about their particular research and how they've made advancements, medical advancements, personally using their own research involving animals. And then we're also going to bring on some individuals from prominent organizations in the field that go out of their way to be supportive of animal research and promote animal research and try to get the word out there like this podcast is doing. And there's a lot of websites out there that do promote animal research. They're just not super easy to come by, but that is starting to change. And hopefully in the years to come, we won't even need websites and podcasts and all this to tell people how important it is because it'll just be the new norm, if you will. Can I say the new norm? It'll be the new norm. And people will just understand that it's totally different than everything they may have thought and that it's great and 100% necessary and the animals are well taken care of. So yeah, there'll be exciting guests coming up. And if Danielle and I haven't entertained you enough, then people coming up on the show will definitely be very entertaining and something that you'll want to listen to. And we also, we briefly touched on the oversight of the IACUC for each institution, but there's other oversight agencies that are outside of the institution that have regulations in place that we have to follow, such as USDA. Yeah, the United States Department of Agriculture, just to right, make it clear. Right. The USDA is, um, they enforce the Animal Welfare Act. They pop in and do surprise inspections to make sure, again, everything's being followed on the protocol. It's always a fun um, day, right? When you're at your computer and knock, knock on your door. And it's yep, the USDA. And stop what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> that's literally how much of a surprise it is. You don't even get a phone call from the parking lot. It's they're walking in your office. 
Yeah. And uh, you have to file reports with them annually to kind of go over the work that's happened in your facility. There is another agency, ALAC, A-A-A-L-A-C. Yep. A lot of A's. <laughs> assessment and accreditation for lab animal care. This is a voluntary accreditation that institutes want to obtain because it's really going above and beyond the required regulations. And it's saying that you do everything with more precautions and more stipulations right. in place to make sure that these animals are cared for. And like I said, it's all voluntary. It's a peer review system. And if you have this accreditation, it helps your institute get more grants, which gets you more funding, which gets more equipment that's newer and better. And everything just continues to kind of snowball into this ever improving research program. Yeah. And it's not easy to get. I mean, they scrutinize and critique every aspect of your protocol. I think our, you have to submit this thing called a program description. You just, you describe everything you could think of. I mean, they're like hundreds of pages, pages long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you're describing square footage. You're describing of the facility. Then you're describing square footage of or square inches of cages. Yep. Because there's yeah. that other book, The Guide, as we refer to it as, but it's The Guide for the Care and Use of Laboratory Animals, which is something that when they, when ALAC comes in, they're going to make sure you're meeting at least all of those requirements, which are just super specific. I mean, down to yeah. how many air changes per hour you have in your room and how many square inches of caging floor space you have to how socially house animals, filtered water, cage washing, everything. But it's definitely worth it. And all the institutions that are doing research, I mean... If you don't have that ALAC accreditation, you're kind of behind the game a little bit. And that's mm -hmm. so, and everyone, they realize the importance of having it because the list of accredited institutions are published online and you don't want to be the one left off that list. It's the gold standard. Indeed. And so, and then there's also the public health service policy or the PHS policy. And so there's a lot of acronyms coming at you in this podcast. Yeah. And that's enforced, here's more, by the National Institutes of Health, NIH, their Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare. And they also require documents to be submitted every four years to approve your facility. And they'll come out occasionally, too, and inspect your facility. And they're just completely random. You never know when they're going to come. I mean, they may let you know before they actually show up, but it's not on any sort of set schedule. So what do we have now? We have the USDA enforcing the Animal Welfare Act, which is actually a law. And they do their inspections and they publish those online right, for people to see if they want to. You can go to their website and look it all up. And then, now with, then we have PHS policy enforced by the NIH. And then we have the ALAC, voluntary accreditation. So between those agencies and then the, all the different standards and guides out there, there's lots of oversight covering all the species of animals. I mean, even the fish are covered, even yeah, the zebrafish. So lots of oversight, definitely not just being taken or ordered online to someone's basement and being used there in some sort of dark, damp environment. I mean, the, <laughs> the facilities are pristine, has. right? You can't have a chip on the wall, inside a paint chip on the wall inside one of these facilities. So it's yeah. just crazy. And it's just mind-boggling the backlash that the field gets. And hopefully we can start to change that. I think we also just kind of wanted to touch on if you work in this field and you're listening to this podcast, we certainly appreciate all the work that you do for these animals. Yeah, 100%. Um, everyone I've met and worked with is so compassionate for the animals. Everyone's got new ideas. You know, there's conferences that happen every year where people can kind of come up with an idea and talk about it, get presentations and, oh, I saw this great lecture on how to add new enrichment to a rabbit enclosure and let's try this at our facility. And, you know, it's very collaborative in the whole industry. 
like I said, these conferences, there's uh, trainings, continuing education opportunities. And uh, if you partake in any of those, we applaud you. We appreciate you. And um, make sure that you guys give us a shout out on Twitter or email so you can be in the running for these Amazon gift cards, which yeah. I'm kind of jealous. And I wish I wasn't co-host so that I could be involved. Yeah. And maybe win Don't one. go making a fake account just so you can try I to won't, win. I promise. I mean, I would never know, but you'll know. And that's all. Well, I'm until I gave you my address to have you ship the gift card, that would give me away. True. You could do a P.O. box. I'll ship to P.O. boxes. Okay. So yeah, just, you know, comment, ask us questions if something was unclear, because I'm sure we were confusing on some topics, yeah. um, you know, just say, hey, can you kind of describe this again? I want to know more about this. And, you know, we can reply on Twitter. We can talk about it in our next podcast. Yep. Um, if you have questions, we can announce once we have a better idea of who will be on the show exactly, we can kind of let everybody know and they can have questions to write in. Yeah, that's a great the, idea. And going back to the, if you're in this field, thank you. You're doing a great job. And it's just... Don't be scared of talking about what you do. I think you just need to make sure you communicate it appropriately and effectively. The more we start talking about it, that's one of the issues. We've been burying our heads in the sand for so long. We need to take our heads out of the sand. We need to start talking about it. The more transparent we are, the less secretive the field looks like, the more people are going to question that something's not right or you know, that it's cruel and inhumane. If we're completely open about what we do and let everyone know how great it all really is, it's just going to help. So let people know, tell them what you do. Even if it does take a minute, it's worth re-educating somebody a little bit about what the truths really are around this field. Well, I well, hope we've entertained you a little bit and hopefully you come back and want to listen to more podcasts and get more information about this really unique and interesting field. Yeah. And then we've set our Twitter handle and then all that, right? We did all that. So we're good. Yeah, Twitter handle is at the lab rat chat. Yep. There's another Twitter account that's just at lab rat chat not and us. it's not affiliated with us and it says it's suspended. So <laughs> make sure you have the word the in right. there. We don't know. The lab rat. We don't know them. We don't know why they're suspended. We are. Yeah. Remember the the at the beginning. <laughs> and then again, email labratchat at gmail.com. And that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll be back soon with okay. another episode with an exciting guest. So stay tuned. <laughs>